night on Arena. Emmy Award winner Jesse Moss on his new documentary, The Mission, and new albums from Dolly Parton, Madness, and Vince Clark up for review. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. In 2018, a young American missionary, John Chow, was killed by arrows while attempting to contact one of the world's most isolated indigenous peoples on remote North Sentinel Island in the Indian Ocean. Chow had ignored repeated warnings from the people of North Sentinel to stay away, but as an evangelical Christian, he was determined to bring the gospel to the island's small population. The Mission is a documentary telling the story of John Chow, a young American Christian who was killed trying to make first contact with the indigenous people of North Sentinel Island. It's co-directed by Emmy Award winner Jesse Moss, who joins me now. Uh, First of all, uh, Jesse, it is an extraordinary story. And even in my introduction, I fell into, I suppose, what you could call one of the traps. I said killed by arrows. Just explain who Jesse was and how significant that phrase is, killed by arrows. Well, that's right, John Chow. Um, as far as we know, the young American missionary uh, was killed on the island of North Sentinel by the uh, the tribe that lives there, the Sentinelese. Um, and, but there, there are only fragments, really, that, w- that we know. His body was never recovered. The eyewitnesses were the fishermen that he paid to transport him there, and they actually didn't see him killed, um, but his body being dragged along the beach. Um, They did, however, uh, keep his diary. And that's how um, the story came to the world's attention in 2018. It became, for a moment, a global news story and then a meme. And John's diary, uh, which is remarkably detailed and remarkably anguished, was really um, uh, how, how many people came to understand what led this young man um, to, to go to this island. And, and and he recorded in detail his interactions with the tribe before his death. But but there was an incomplete record. And mm. the motivation to make the documentary was to try to fill in the gaps. Yeah, and I, I think there were other motivations there for sure as well. But picking up on, on my berating myself for picking on that phrase, killed by arrows, that was the mm. nature in many ways of much of the reportage at the time. It emphasised this in inverted commas, primitive people with their bows and arrows and this, in inverted commas, civilised Christian coming to their island uh, and being killed as a result. And it it kind of picked on on both of those people, uh, both of those sets of people and ridiculed them in turn. Absolutely. There, there was re- really reductive reporting ab- about both parties to this tragedy. And um, uh, part of what we interrogate and our partner, National Geographic, is how uh, we have how we think about indigenous communities and how they are often defined as primitive and savage. And we, the West, defined as modern. And these interactions where we bring them something, in John's case, he brought them Christianity. Um, And he himself was, I think, motivated by these stories, both the Christian narratives that he took in, but also these secular stories like National Geographic, a magazine that he read, um, that that I think filled his head with um, a kind of um, enchantments that he could live out this fantasy, that, that, that they would receive him. And we, we wanted to really look critically at those stories that have defined for so many of us how we think about indigenous cultures. 
I want to listen to a clip from the movie and you mentioned, uh, Jesse, that, that one of the things that you had have done is, or you got your hands on, is the, the diary of John Shaw um, from these fishermen and you chose then to have that diary voiced by, by an actor. And let's listen to a clip from early on when we get a sense of some of John Shaw's motivations in travelling to North Sentinel. I plan on arriving on the shores of an island in which an unknown number of people live, who have unknown religious beliefs and speak an unknown tongue. Some have called this the most difficult and impossible place to reach on Earth. Lord, is this island Satan's last stronghold? Soli Deo Gloria, John Chow. My friend John paid some pirates to go to an island to talk to people about Jesus when he knew that he had no business doing that. And there we go. That's a, a clip from the film, the documentary film, The Mission. And one of its co-director, Jesse Moss, co-directed the film with his wife. Uh, Jesse is with us on the programme this evening. And the voice that we hear at the end there of that clip, Jesse, is one of John's friends, because there are others who speak directly to us who are still with us. That's right. We we did um, speak to people in John's community. He evan- was an evangelical Christian, and it's a very insular a group, but um, I think many of them are, are proud of of John and his choice, his martyrdom. Um, and it was important to try to understand John's motivations and the world that he came out of. That's a big part of our conversation in the film. And I'm glad that we could gain their trust. John himself is elusive. Uh, he was something of a secret agent in his planning of this mission. He spent 10 years very methodically, very intelligently preparing to do this almost impossible task. And that's quite different than how he was portrayed mm. in, the, in the world media as this kind of re- reckless, impulsive young man on a suicide mission. Um, but we needed to contextualize the history of the tribe as well, because it wasn't just a single party here. There, were, there, were, there was the community that he, that he sought to um, convert. And they have a history. In fact, they're not uncontacted. They were defined that way in the those initial news reports, mm. but they have quite a complicated history. And so unpacking that um, was part of um, our, our project, uh, speaking to uh, anthropologists and historians who have studied the tribe, who have been to the island. There's only a handful of people in the world who've ever been there. And um, they are, it, it turns out, uh, re- really elusive. Um, uh, but they they did come in contact actually with uh, the a British colonial administrator a hundred years ago, and that was a tragic uh, encounter. And I think the the legacy of of that colonial administration is part of what hangs over the story. Um, and and I think it was important to sort of to, to bring those insights to to this because there were these two parties here, not just John. You do give us a very interesting interesting perspective from David Everett, who was a missionary uh, himself at one point in his life and certainly seems to have changed his tune, if that's not too flippant a term to use. He certainly has changed his mind around the, 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 early, the activities of the earlier part of his life. 
Well, it turns out to be very hard to find ex-missionaries, and I'm not <laughs> sure quite why, but Dan Everett became an enormously important character in this story. He's, as a young man, did something much like John. He went to the Amazon to convert an indigenous tribe, and and he had a very hard time doing that, and, and he ends up really having his faith shaken. And so he brings... I think a really valuable perspective to, to our understanding of John, to, to what work with an indigenous tribe really feels like and how hard it is and, and, and how, how wrong that can go if you are able to survive that first step onto the shores of an unknown place. Um, John did not. The other valuable perspective, I'll just say in our um, uh, film, is John's father, Patrick, yes. who, who shared with us a, a very uh, powerful anguished letter that he wrote, making sense of the tragedy of the choices his son made uh, that he disagreed with. It, um, it was really a questioning of John's radical faith. His father is also Christian, but didn't believe in the actions that John was uh, undertaking. Yeah. And I think for us who questioned John, it was important to have a, ha have a voice close to John asking those hard questions. So, so both Dan and Patrick, while compassionate, are, are skeptical. And I think we, we, we need to hear what they have to say to make sense of John. Uh, absolutely. And and the father, Patrick, while he doesn't appear, um, we get archive footage of John himself, you know, uh, home footage from pals when he was, because he loved the outdoors and that was all part of his plan, it would seem, getting ready for this trip to the island. We get footage of him, but to a large extent, we get animated footage of of uh, Pat with all the time of Patrick in fact his father and uh, at times of John as well but you know those listening might think oh yes well of course the liberal media they're going to get the the skeptical voices in and around uh, evangelical radical evangelical christians i have to commend you on the fact that you you do not the easy route here is to just say, well, sure, of course, it's 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 radical, it's evangelical, and it's it's so insular that it doesn't see anything outside of itself. You give a very reasoned um, a, a, a account of John's motivations and his his total belief. Yeah, I, I think it was important to to try to understand John compassionately, and that's where the people close to him. Uh, uh, give us those those insights and some some understanding of him as a, as a human being, right? Um, which he was, mm. and someone of of really um, determined faith, um, and and yet um, to, to to remain somewhat skeptical too. And and it's it's it, John himself never questioned his his single minded mission once he found it. He, he he found it when he was sixteen, and he he went to this island when he was twenty six. But uh, but those around him did gently try to challenge him. And, and, and I think that, um, you know, w w we're not questioning his faith, but really his decisions. And, and that was an important distinction to make. And, and whether along the way, you know, he was radicalized. I mean, he came with this determination, but, but there were people around him who helped him, who prepared him. And I think the way in which John's faith was sharpened. There's a, a proverb as iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another. And there were people who really sent John along the way. And they're part of a, a bigger network of mission sending organizations and the university the, that he attended in the United States. And this is not a, a, a subculture. In America, it's a dominant culture, frankly. It's it's a big community and there's a lot of missionary work in the world. And I, I, I don't think we let John's story define all missionary work, but I think it provides a great prism to ask 
important questions about it. I also think that um, what we discovered quite unexpectedly is that John actually believed really in a second faith, which was the faith of adventure and exploration. He read Tintin, and he, as I mentioned, he read National Geographic. And we discovered that that actually there were stories that we read as children that John did too. And I think that we, in that way, kind of discovered a, a, a reflection of ourselves in John that we didn't anticipate. And I think that for audiences come ready to see John as a very different than themselves, uh, I, I think there's a, a little bit of a, a kind of a startling reflection um, in in all of the stories that he took in and not just the scripture um, that, that we all have taken in and, and um, have, have really defined our world in sometimes damaging ways. So um, that, that was one of the, the, the discoveries for us. I, I did wonder about, it. I'm sure the naming of the documentary film as The Mission is no mistake, given the feature film of some years back with Robert De Niro and Liam Neeson and Ray McAnally, the Roland Joffrey film of, of, I can't remember the particular date, but what is it, maybe 20 years ago at this stage? Was that in your mind in some ways when naming this documentary film, giving it the same title? Well, it, it, I think it to me it was the best title for uh, for this film. I'm, of course, I'm aware of that film. It's yeah. it's, it's a great film. Um, and but I, you know, John's mission was a religious mission, but very much a kind of. Uh, a mission impossible too. And I think the mission in our film at least has a double meaning. And I'm, I'm not sure in quite the same mm. way it has a double meaning in, in that earlier film. And um, we, we actually, I considered, I'll say an alternate title, which was the tip of the spear. Of course, John was killed by arrows or perhaps by a spear. We don't know, but we can assume fairly that it was an arrow tip that killed him. He was himself, he described himself as an arrow on the tip of a spear, you know, as this kind of advancing party of of this Christian movement. Mm. And, and I think that there was a um, it was a discussion of, of, and this is actually back to your first question, or, 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 or the, you know, I think that you pose that that is that in, are we approaching this story in an inflammatory or incendiary yeah. way? And I think we had to step back and say perhaps that's that's not how we want to title the film. But I think there was a kind of startling duality, and that John described himself in that way, and, and and of course that's how he met his fate. A kind of I don't know. It, it's yeah. it's the kind of story that he might have read as a child. It, it has a kind of tragic irony, I would yeah, say. Yeah, some of the stories and the books and the novels and the films that he was watching as a teenager are quite telling and they're all there in the film. One final question on that very matter. Uh, there is an exclusion zone around the North Sentinel Island. Uh, we see some footage within the, the film, within your documentary film, from what looks like it's from offshore, from quite a distance offshore of the island. And we do see people on the on the beach carrying bows and arrows, carrying weapons. Is that footage of your own or was that archive footage or where did that come from? We 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 never broke the It's illegal to go there. We didn't break the law. We And we think it's unethical. Too. It's not mm. only illegal, it's unethical to go to the island. But National Geographic in 1974 supported an anthropological expedition to the island. And the footage that you see in the movie is extraordinary and remarkable. And and in fact, it's part of what we interrogate in the film is what what was the story that National Geographic told about that imagery? And as we re revisit it today, I think we see it with a like a, a sort of new meaning, new context. Um, the the film is a, is a collage, and I think uh, I'm very proud of it. There, there there's this remarkable archival footage that there was one other documentary filmmaker who went there. She's Indian in, in the 90s before it was illegal. She went mm. actually as part of another anthropological trip. But um, I'll just leave you with one one final detail, which I thought was remarkable, is that 
turns out that the movie King Kong, the, the great you know 1930s Hollywood film, was actually inspired by the filmmaker's trip to this island chain in the 1920s. It's like this single tiny island contains so much history and mythology. It's it's done so much yeah. um, in, in, in our world to define how we think about our relationship to to these other people and and it's it's um and and yet we know so little about it, it it's it's fascinating and and i i um i thank you very much for for um for talking with me about the movie not at all great to speak with you this evening jesse thanks for thanks for being with us um that jesse speaking to us about his film the mission which is on release in selected cinemas at the moment The Monsterverse franchise returns to television with Monarch Legacy of Monsters, a new 10-part series premiering on Apple TV Plus today. The series, set in the aftermath of 2014's Godzilla film, stars Kurt and Wyatt Russell as an old and young version of a character called Lee Shaw, a cocky US Army lieutenant who, together with a team of brilliant scientists, discovers that monsters are in fact, guess what, real. And they're living among us. A sprawling sci-fi saga monarch story spans half a century, hence Russell's Russell, um, the Russell father and son stunt casting. Chris Wasser has been watching Monarch. He's with me in the studio now. Um, I, I, it's probably a more complicated setup than it than than I'm making it sound there, or a less complicated set, setup than I'm making it sound there, Chris. Yeah, the um, I, the, because the first thing that people might be thinking is this: this is a monsterverse franchise. Mm-hmm. This is a franchise that has existed for nearly ten years. So newcomers might be thinking, well, you know, is there any room for me here, and what, what do I need to know? All you need to know is that we are in a world where monsters are real, and that there is this organization known as Monarch, which is dedicated to kind of you know uh, finding out if there. Tresh, communicating with them if they can. And this story started with the uh, Godzilla film that you mentioned Mm. at the top there, directed by Gareth Edwards, starring Brian Cranston, arrived in 2014 and told a very simple story of, as you say, scientists discovering that these monsters are real. And Godzilla in this film, he came out of hiding. I don't know how a creature that big can be in hiding. Um, (laughs) And he was engaged in this deadly duel with two parasitic, two other parasitic monsters and they pretty much leveled San Francisco. And we've had other films like Kong Skull Island, which was a King Kong film set on the island that was the best thing about it that they didn't actually take it to a city we've had Godzilla versus Kong this franchise while, while, while not always you know liked by critics I mean I, I thought the first Godzilla film was okay, mm. was okay. Kong Skull Island was great the rest have been a bit ropey um, they have made money and there's always been interest to explore the history of this you know shady kind of CIA sort of organisation at the centre which is Monarch so that's where this television series comes into, comes into play all right. We, we the opening sequence is uh, who we see somebody on an island. We don't know who we he do. is at, at at the beginning. Uh, we just know that he's sending a message to those back home saying, "Look, I mightn't have been the best dad in the world, but uh, I'm not sure if I'll get out of this mess." Yeah. And behind him is a giant spider who's about to eat him. Yes, that's pretty much it. Uh, if you have seen Kong Skull Island, you know who it is. It's Bill Randa. He's played by John Goodman. And yes, he is saying that, you know, if you've seen this message, then I've then I probably died after he is chased by this big spider. Um, and again, newcomers, you'll pick it up as it goes along. This show is very good at explaining itself. He throws this message along with a bag of like old school cassettes on which there are very obviously top secret files, Sean. Um, he throws them into, you know, a water protected bag into the ocean. They're picked up by uh, a fishing trawler. And you're thinking to yourself, who's on this fishing trawler what's going on well we'll have to wait a little bit longer because we fast forward 50 years and we see that that bag has ended up inside the vault of a businessman whose kids did not know what their father was involved in 
All right. Um, and then we meet a young woman on a train and this is kind of where the uh, the double family story starts to kick in. Yeah, that's it. So we have Anna Sawi playing this woman named Kate and she's this young uh, school teacher from San Francisco. She was on the Golden Gate Bridge on G-Day, as they're calling it. That's when Godzilla yeah. uh, destroyed the place. And she keeps getting flashbacks. She that. does. She's clear. I mean, you would. You'd be traumatised. Right? Yeah, yeah. You know, if, we, if we saw that sort of thing Godzilla happen. Godzilla on O'Connell Bridge. <laughs> not, not, a good, not a good feeling. We'd need a lie down afterwards, Sean. Uh, but but she, uh, her, she, as I say, she's a school teacher and a lot of her students actually died that day. So she's traumatized by this. And to, to bring it back to a personal level, she's traveled to Japan because that's where her father lived and she hadn't seen him for quite some time. But she understands that he died. She's there to settle his affairs. She goes to this apartment and she realizes my father had a second family. Yeah, she goes into the apartment and a woman, she screams when she sees this woman there. Before long, the woman and her son are sitting down and they're having a chat about uh, what are you doing in my dad's apartment? Prove it. <laughs> Where's your proof? A bunch of pictures? I've got pictures. This is us camping out the Redwoods. He got poison oak and had these horrible red blotches all over his arms. Drove him crazy. Ring any bells? This is our backyard. He built that playhouse for me when I was five. One weekend, he was actually home. It was a good one. I bought them a sunset cruise for their wedding anniversary. 30 years. That's an accomplishment. How long were you married to him? Don't talk to her like that. Lenny, I'm not judging her. But aren't you even curious who he was cheating on first? Your mother or mine? There we go. That's Anna Sawai as a kid. And you also heard Kentaro, Ren, Ren Watabe, both of them discovering they have the same father. And then the other mother is in there as well. Emiko, played by Kyoko Kudo, although we didn't we didn't hear her in that clip. So that's a that's the contemporary part of the yes. story. But there are a couple of timelines here and an important one is back in 1950. Back in 1950s. And what brings us back to 1950s is that when they, when those two characters that you heard there who didn't realise that they had a sibling in the first mm. place, when they investigate their father's office, their father was a workaholic, he was rarely around. They find the vault, they open the vault and inside that vault is that bag of cassettes that John that Goodman threw in. The very so they start to realise that they have some sort of family link to the beginning of Monarch and then we're shown the beginning of Monarch. And it concerns, as I said, uh, a US Army lieutenant is name is Lee Shaw. He's played by Wyatt Russell and he's he's a temperamental sort. He, he's bad at following orders so he's actually sent to the Philippines after World War II to escort this brilliant Japanese scientist uh, uh, Keiko is her name and he is quite disrespectful to her at the beginning. He doesn't really know what a cryptozoologist does. When he come, when they, when the team, when the two of them come across another cryptozoologist Two cryptozoologists uh, uh, Sean, which are zoologists for creatures that shouldn't really exist. Uh, when 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 they when when two becomes three basically, and we have the younger Bill Ronda play by Anders Home. I know this sounds a bit complicated, but keep up. Uh, so when the younger, these are the younger characters. These of are the younger characters of the, yeah. So they are in the Philippines. They follow these radiation trails, and basically they discover that monsters are real. They see a dragon. They discover the existence of Godzilla, and they go about setting up this research team called Monarch to kind of monitor the existence of these yeah. dangerous animals. Well, listen. Let's take a clip then from that 1959, just to get a sense of because yeah. the the, the contemporary 
every clip that we heard, it, it is so contemporary, whereas the 1959 has a kind of a, a daring-do feeling to yeah. it. And we'll get Dr. Keiko Mioro, the Mar- Mari Yamamoto's uh, character here, as well as Billy, played by Anders Holm, and Lee Shaw, played by Wyatt Russell, so the young version of the Kurt Russell character. There's something down there. Some new form of Muto. They look embryonic, like larva, almost like a nursery. Yeah. And if it's a nursery, mom can't be far away, right? We need to get a sample of the genetic material. Mm-hmm. So you want to go down there? Well, yeah, I mean, they appear to be dormant, right? Appears to be? We're talking about a new goddamn species, Lee. And we can't afford to pass up an opportunity to learn whatever we can. We can. We can if it's going to get our asses killed. Then why are we here? I just think that we should... I have a bad feeling about this. Billy's right. We're not going home empty-handed. Whoa, whoa. What are you doing? I know the sample particles. Okay, come back over the rail. I'm the lightest. You boys can pull me up if I get in trouble. Okay. We are not just letting you go down there. No. You're not letting me? She's right. It's gotta be her. What are you doing? Billy, what are you, hey, hey, stop, stop. Both of you stop. Tell me exactly how much time you need down there to collect the genetic material. Five minutes. Tops. Okay. Do it together. There you go. Uh, Wyatt Russell, uh, Mari Yamamoto and Anders Holm in that scene from Monarch New Apple TV Plus series that Chris Wasser is speaking to us about this evening. And it has that Indiana Jones, daring do, mm-hmm. feel off it, you know, the 1950s and, and, and all that that entails. Are they two very different stories that are running alongside each other in that respect? They are a little bit, you know, but they have but they have this interesting through line, which is the Russell, the double Russell yeah. show. So you've got Kurt Russell playing Lee Shaw 50 years later when the three characters I mentioned earlier um, needs someone to kind of help explain like what was, you know, ex- what was, what was going, going on, on with, 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 uh, with Kate's father. Um, and that's what kept me hooked because I know some listeners might be thinking, is this a really a Godzilla show? Is this really a show about monsters? It, it, it is, but the monsters are kept largely to the background and you know what that actually works yeah because I was I was wondering I was asking you about that I mean the opening sequence to be fair uh, and I was only watching it on a computer screen so that's even smaller than probably the average television it is it is impressive enough but I thought I wonder do we really want to see those big creatures on a on a big screen. So what does putting it onto the small screen allow that perhaps a film wouldn't be able to do? Putting it onto the small screen and spreading the story over 10 hours allows the MonsterVerse to kind of explore the humans that have always been at the centre of the story. And on the big screen in Godzilla vs. Kong and Godzilla mm. King of the Monsters, the humans are just there to explain the plot and they're just there to scream and shout and explain the science stuff and just to fill in the blanks between Kong and Godzilla. So are we getting much more of a story we, and we a are, character um, it, development It's more here. of a character-driven tale and I think it actually works a lot better for for two reasons one that Kurt Russell White Russell thing is fantastic it does sound a bit gimmicky it does sound like stone casting maybe it is those things but he's a brilliant character and I think when Kurt Russell steps into this 
this. He he comes into it at the end of episode two. Uh, the show just comes alive yeah. and the fireworks go off and and it just the 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 the, the trills are there and he just brings that old school movie star charisma to it. And also, it's very interesting to watch an actor, father and son, play Pain. the same role yeah. because sometimes you're thinking, are you playing a version of dad? Are you playing a version of your son? And then you realize, no, they're creating something together and it's very well done. And there's also little fade outs and fade ins where their faces kind of turn old Bend or go young. Each other. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very nicely done. Yeah. The second thing is it shows you a world that has a very real impact as a result of that where where the monsters have had a very real impact on how people live their lives. When Kate travels to Japan, once she's on the plane when it lands in Tokyo, everyone is sprayed down for parasites. When she's walking through the streets, she sees that there are evacuation zones and there are yeah. drills every yeah. day to help people if these things really happen. And just the, the paranoia and the fear, all of that stuff is very well done and it's never been explained and it's never been shown in the movies before. So I think that is one of the benefits okay. of doing it on television. So uh, uh, how many episodes have you watched their I've watched three. I'm actually on the four, and I must and say it's it is it's very nicely done so far. Okay. Yeah, it might be a little slow up ahead. I, I don't know how it's gonna you know last over ten episodes, but I'm here for the Russells. Uh, I'm here for the performances. I'm here for the storytelling, which is better than anything we've seen in the film so far. Uh, and I'm also here for the occasional glimpse of Godzilla because I can't resist that. All right, plenty of reasons to watch then from Chris Wasser. The first two episodes of Monarch Legacy of Monsters are available to stream on Apple TV Plus right now. And so we go into the final half hour of the programme and our album reviews as usual on a Friday evening. And when you hear our lineup tonight, you'd be forgiven for thinking we have been transported into the 1970s or 80s. But though all of the artists may have had fame some decades ago, they are still creating new music and performing. First up, perhaps the furthest back, if she'll forgive me for saying that, to have achieved stardom is Dolly Parton. She was one of the first successful crossover artists from country to mainstream. Her fame has begat everything from a theme park Dollywood, to a reading programme, the Imagination Library. Her new album is called Rockstar. Madness, the ska pop band, were formed back in 1976. Constant touring has kept Suggs & Co. one step beyond. Theatre of the Absurd presents C'est la Vie is their pithily titled new item. And finally then, Vince Clark, one of the main drivers of synth pop writing for bands such as Depeche Mode and Yazoo, and then becoming composer and musician in Erasure. His new his solo album is called Songs of Silence. We're going to start with Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton, rock star. That's what she's saying. That is what the album is called. And here is how the album opens. Anybody want to be in rock and roll? She's a rock star. That's what Dolly Parton sings. And I managed to get that old family footage, obviously, when she was a teenager with her parents shouting up the stairs at her. So that is how Dolly Parton's rock star starts off her her new... I, I'm calling it a triple album because it's two and a half hours long. Um that's how it starts off. Whose idea was it that Dolly Parton could be a rock star, Eva? Well, it was kind of her idea, but it was in response to being um, invited into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame um, last year. And she was like, 
but I'm a country woman. Um, I'm not going to Gorilla Biz. Thanks very much. Yeah. <laughs> um, sorry, don't sue me, Dolly. Um, and she was like, no, I'm country first. And then she changed her mind. And then she said, well, she basically said, well, if I'm going to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I've got to make a rock album. Um, and she decided to do this. And I mean, there, I suppose there, there were a couple of ways of doing this. Like you could have expected her to go back and bring her kind of country inflected sound and pop sound into the rock world, write her own song. She's a great mm. songwriter. Um, you could have maybe said she might do some covers maybe. On this record, she's mostly covered classic, extremely well-known yeah. rock songs. And she's also brought the artists in most of the cases on board to sing yeah. alongside her. And she's she's written a few songs as well on this record as well. Um uh, the first yeah, one, rock, rock star. Rock star is the first one. It sets yeah. out the stall as you hear at the start. Yeah, the parents yeah. are saying, you know, you shouldn't be a rock star. She's saying, yes, I should. And it goes on from there. I mean, it was it was an unexpected sound, you know, for me. And because and boy, does it go on. It goes on. I mean, it does have thirty. 30 it does have long. thirty songs yeah. now. But in the midst of that, you have Heart of Glass with Debbie Harry. You have um, I Hate Myself. Uh, for loving you with Joan Jett you have um, what, what did she do with Elton John can't remember um, I won't let the sun go down not quite sure if that's rock and roll but nevertheless over, over George Michael yeah. and, and yeah. I mean there, there are a bundle of great artists on here she does um, there's, there's no doubting her contacts list and who she's got in her yeah. address although book. she couldn't get Mick Jagger to do satisfaction no that, that, that is true yeah. I, I've made a note there where is Mick obviously too too busy I, I think she engages with the big question here full on with that song Rock, rock Star yeah. why is she doing this and I think that as soon as this was announced last year um, the, the keepers of the sacred rock and roll frame decree that Dolly shall, shall not rock you know that she she can she can't do this she she shouldn't be doing rock music and I, if you ask me Sean if Dolly Parton wants to make a concept Absolutely. dubstep drill yeah. album she should go ahead and do <laughs> yeah. it now it pains me to say this considering that Dolly is probably the most loved person in the world this album to me is a is a turkey it's very much the stuffed turkey because uh, it goes on for two and a half hours yeah. I don't understand why she just didn't stick to the ten of her own compositions uh, here some of which are very good and just put that out yeah, or else. did you know tick the really big um, classic hits like The Satisfaction like the ones and, and, and the ones that she does like Satisfaction she does with a, a group of other women and yeah. there are other uh, rocks like that and I thought why don't we have the Dolly Parton and her pals yeah. rock album don't and that. just give us 12 mm. tracks don't be giving us 30 it's too much yeah it's just too much it's kind of over-egging the pudding because mm. like Dolly Parton doesn't have anything to prove. Like no. she doesn't need to prove to anybody, to any gatekeepers maybe that she belongs. Maybe that's why she did. I'm any, doing thirty. Like, that's <laughs> it. I mean, in a way, it, maybe she's deliberately over-egging the pudding because she's saying, "Well, you questioned me." Some people, like Adam, is saying, "We're questioning why she should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when she was a country star originally, but she did move into pop and became very successful commercially." But you know, if you look at all the um, ads and everything, and the the images, the promo images, she's clad like practically head to toe in leather. She's got the electric guitar. There's like she, she's. Really Really yeah. leaning into the classic rock trope, so it's yeah, very yeah. enjoyable. I, I think she's, big, I she? think she's very aware of the magnificent ridiculousness of the whole project, and she doesn't care what the snobs might think. I mm. just wish it was uh, shorter and more successful yeah. in yeah. the choice of music and the choice of songs. Some of these songs just don't suit her, yeah. and, and some of them are really good. Yeah, you you particularly liked Night Moves. This is with Chris Stapleton. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was very good. I really liked. Yeah, it's it's more it's more. Like you know, close to her genre, and Chris Stapleton's a really great country singer, like a modern country singer, and I think they work really well together. And I didn't feel like she was pushing into anything, trying to prove anything. It was like she was really yeah. comfortable in the yeah. song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
was a little too small, could have used a few pounds. Tight skirts, points, hardly renowned. See, um, the, the, my problem there is I, when I heard that track coming up, I thought, no, that's not on the album called Rockstar. That's on mm. just one of your ordinary albums and you take Chris Stapleton in to do it. Maybe uh, that's I, I, why I liked it so much. <laughs> Classic American FM rock. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, if we had 12 tracks here, and we could probably debate over which 12 tracks that that would be. If we had 12 tracks yeah. here, would we be jumping up and down with delight, Aoife? It really does depend what, the, what what songs they are. I know that might be an obvious answer to it, but I think some of the songs like Night Moves, um, she does a completely different metal song with um, Rob Halford of Judas Priest and Nikki Six of Motley Crue called Bygones, which I think she wrote herself, she did, which yeah. also works really, really well. So when it's good, it's really entertaining. Yeah. But when it's like Heart of Glass, it just sounds like karaoke. Like and what about um, something like What Has Rock and Roll Ever Done For You with Stevie Nicks? I, I, I enjoyed that. Uh, Stevie Nicks is one of the great voices and, you know, Dolly, one of the great voices and they're vamping it up big style and the, the, converse, yeah. the dialogue between the two of them is great crack as well, I yeah, think. Yeah, and she but does that in a few It's worth noting that What's Up with Linda Perry is on this album and I can reliably inform you it's one of the worst songs of the past 30 years. And Wrecking I Ball really with, like with, that song. with <laughs> Wrecking Ball with her, is it her niece? Her niece? Miley Cyrus. Miley Cyrus, yeah. yeah. That's actually good. really nice. Yeah. I'm not a big nice fan of that song but I actually think they did a really good version because Some she pulls the back, it's restrained, it's really, it's lovely. You hear it in a different way. All right, stars, how dare, now, you're going to do it to Dolly, I can see it in your face. Aoife Star, for Dolly Parton. Forgive me, Dolly, for I have sinned. Um, two out of five. I'm really sorry. That's Dolly Parton, uh, uh, who gave us the reading program, the Imagination Library. And how many stars are you giving? Well, I, I think this is Ned Flanders' idea of what a rock album should sound like. I'm going to give it two rhinestones. I'd have to agree with Aoife. Oh, Not great. dear, poor old Dolly. I'd have given it more if I had stars to give out. <laughs> OK, let us move on then to Madness. Theatre of the Absurd presents C'est la vie. I kind of had to think about this 40 times to work out what was, was actually going on. Um, well, I give you the prologue because this is, this is to explain what the album is about. Mr Beckett, sir, it's time. Your audience awaits. There you go. That's the prologue. There is an epilogue as well. And there yeah. are little announcements to acts one, two and three. Mm. We are in a concept album, which many people say is madness. This is from Uh-oh. madness. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think this is their first album uh, since 2016, a key year in recent British history, of course. And I think this is their look back on the madness that has seized uh, England since, since then. I, I would describe it as a, a concept album, somewhat of a, a companion piece to uh, Merry Land by the Good, the Bad and the Queen. Uh, that's Damon Albarn's band, of course. And I think Madness, we, we all know the singles. They're one of the most successful British bands of, yeah. all, of all time. But they do deal in social commentary. And this album is very much a, a Hogarthian trawl through the back streets of, of, of London. That's Martin Freeman. He's the narrator. Yeah. Uh, and it, they, he presents uh, the, the two acts the album is made up of and, and the epilogue. It, it is a voyage to the heart of London and a, and a very seedy London, I think. Yeah, well, let's listen to then immediately out of the prologue comes the title track. Well, it's not, sorry, it's not the title of the track. It's part of the title track, Theatre of the Absurd, mm. uh, which is part of the title. And 
So you really get a sense from that um, second track, well, the first real track on the album, Madness, uh, uh, Theatre of the Absurd Presents C'est La Vie. That track gives us a sense of, there's a, there's a real sense of theatricality here. In fact, I thought this is probably a show that should be yeah. seen on stage as much as an album that should be listened to. Yeah, Eva. definitely. And they're a band that, that do like, you know, kind of costumes and, and mm. you know, the, the showmanship of performance yeah. and kind of pushing things. Um, and yeah, you really, like, I felt like Suggs really the lead singer there it was really like the ringmaster of a circus you know and the band or his like troupe of artists that he was guiding around this space you can really visualise the space or the circus or the stage where they are and because of that it really felt like he was in control even though there is a looseness to it and yeah. that kind of excitement that you have when you see someone on stage where you're like oh what's going to happen what's going to go wrong or right um, but this is, this is interesting too because they produced the album and wrote it themselves so they had the control over the production elements and I think that probably leads to them feeling very comfortable with mm-hmm. it yeah. whether or not people will get or enjoy the fact that it is a concept album and that it is broken into three acts like as I listened to it I didn't really think about yeah, that to be honest yeah. I was listening to individual lyrics but I wasn't trying to see it as a whole after a few listens and do we get a little bit of good old madness ska oh yeah of course yeah there's quite a few barrel house knees up here and the brass section on this as with all uh, madness albums is is superb I particularly like a song called uh, what on earth is this you take what do you take me for which is again a social commentary it's Sounds like you're stuck in a lockup down Isle of Dogs Way, being interrogated <laughs> by Michael Elphick and Danny Dyer. You know, it's it's that's, good. That's Danny fun. Dyer and uh, Dolly Parton and, and, and Danny tonight. Dyer in, in, in one night. Yeah. It, it, it is concept, but there are some very good cracking pop singles on here as well. I think, Sean. Uh, let's have a little listen to Round We Go. Just wanted to get a little flavour of that because when the when the vocal kicks in there, you're kind of almost in classic madness character, yeah. missing a bit of saxophone and things like that. But nevertheless, yeah. Um, does it work overall for you, Aoife, and stars on this one? Yeah, it, it did work for me. I'd give it three point five. I think if you're not a madness fan, you're not going to be converted because it does what it says in the tin. It's a madness album, but it's yeah. still it's much more enjoyable than I actually expected it to be. And I really liked it that at this stage of their career, thirteen albums in, they're pushing the boat out and coming yeah. up with ideas like this. So what did you? say 3? 3.5. 3.5? Yes. I, I would give it 3.5 as well. It's kind of like a grown-up version of House of Fun. Mm. Grown-up version of House of Fun. Okay, mm. 3.5 from theatre, for, for Madness and Theatre of the Third presents C'est La Vie. Moving on finally then to Vince Clark's synth-pop composer who always needed a singer in the 1980s, Dave Gann of Depeche Mode, Alison Moya in Yuzu, Andy Bell in Erasure. Now Clark has written a solo album, his first uh, aptly named, I think, Songs of Silence. Listen to Blackleg. Um, I'm not running out onto the floor <laughs> to dance to this as I might have done yeah. if somebody else was singing a Vince Clark song. I'm also not going to hear, I think I hear a little bit of kind of operatic vocalese in one of the tracks yes. yeah, this uh, is at some point, yeah. but that's kind of it. It's mostly that kind of Ambient. atmospheric yeah. music, if I'm to be 
generous. Yeah, definitely. This is not an album filled with dance floor bangers at all. Um, if you if you're into as I am ambient music, drone, you know, if you like people like Stars of the Lid, Boards, mm. bit of Boards of Canada, Brian Eno, Tangerine Dream, you'll love this record. But it's on the dark side of all of those um, artists. This is very atmospheric, very foreboding, very brooding, kind of leaning almost into like Scandinavian, you know, black yeah. metal side of things um, at moments. And it is it's a dark album, and there were dark things that happened to him in. in 2022 he lost two friends his wife was very seriously ill as well so you know he was playing around with with synthesizers and with this system called Eurorack to make this music where he could just kind yeah. of plug in lots of devices and you can see he really went down this kind of soundscape um, and it did it route. did strike me as I was listening I think that the, you know the time you choose to listen to this album very the important. space in which you yeah. choose to listen to it yeah. I was in very busy traffic listening to it that not, is not, not the, the best place. place. I mean, it's okay. I, I think therefore I ambient. It, it's a yeah. real immersive headphones album. Mm-hmm. I think a, a nighttime listen, and in the in the situation and circumstances, he's recorded in isolation during lockdown. His wife was ill. He'd lost uh, two of his friends, including Fletch from Depeche Mode. Unfortunately, he died last year. So he was in a very contemplative mood. He was right. alone with only the cat for company in his studio. All right. So um, what are we saying overall on this album? I, I don't want to go into another because I, it, it is so dark. I think you need to let the things breathe. And well, I, I think that the song you chose to play there, Black, Black Leg, is very kind of, um, you know, representative of it. And, and like the minor on that song, uh, there, there's a sample of a 19, an 1844 old English folk song on that. And like the minor, he's Vince Clark sounds like he's toiling away in silence and darkness and very much in isolation. Yeah. I think that's the vibe of this album. All right. So stars from you on it, Alan. Uh, three and a half. Three and a half. What are you saying? Three point five as well. Yeah, three and a three half. Three and a half. Pretty solid and uh, consistent across the three albums. Then for you, Rockstar from Dolly Parton, Theatre of the Absurd presents La Vie from Madness, Songs of Silence from Vince Clark. Um, and I'm finishing the the album reviews a little bit earlier. Sad news that uh, came to us today: the the death of A.S. Byatt. I suppose best known for Possession. He's a, he's a huge novel back in the day, Aoife. Yeah, exactly. It won the Booker in 1990, <clears throat> excuse me, and it sold like over 90,000 copies, I think, um, overall, at least up to a couple of years ago. And I actually have seen it come back up in kind of the, the Instagram and, and book talk spaces where, where younger readers are now finding possession and deciding uh, that they want to read it because it's it's really interesting to see books having that resurgence after um, a number of decades. It was made into a film as well, starring Gwyneth Paltrow. And she is someone who's interesting because her sister Margaret Drabble is also a novelist and you know there was a lot of mm. press around their yeah. relationship their mother encouraged them to both be studious young women you know they both taught um, or teach and taught um, English um, or literature and that idea that when they're writing whether or not they're reflecting elements of their own relationship and their own lives and their own work and, and Margaret Drabble did talk about her relationship with the Byatt who was older than her and whether they had a good relationship or not and definitely more than hinted that they didn't when they were younger at least have a, have a great relationship but I suppose the, the media is always going to be interested in the kind of uh, sibling rivalry of two really popular novelists. Um, Drabble, Drabble got more uh, famous before her sister and then when Byatt won yeah. the Booker she kind of took over in fame and earning more money. Well, really it, was, it. it was such a it was such a big hit mm. uh, um, uh, possession even before uh, before the Booker win came, yeah. did she did she reach those heights again? No, I think that was really the mo- the moment for her in terms of I suppose every novelist that has a has a big moment when they win a huge prize like the Booker, mm. that's always going to be the one novel people think of. But she's well known for her other novels yeah. as well, if you get me. Um, and she's someone too who you know she kind of played with different different tropes and different ideas in her work. And you've got the historical sense of kind of the Victorian world that she writes about in that book, and then you also have the contemporary world and that she plays it like writing letters and you know. Yeah. 
different type Pairs of forms, forms in, yeah, in the book as well too which I think makes it stand out um, amongst her different All right, books. so that's um, A.S. Byatt. Uh, she survived by her husband and three daughters. Her son Charles died in a road accident aged 11 and uh, may A.S. Byatt rest in peace as well. Let us um, give you our competition winner then this evening. Tchaikovsky of course is the composer of Swan Lake and the Nutcracker. Piotr Illich Tchaikovsky if we want the full name and I wonder did anybody spell that all three of them correctly well certainly somebody got the, the answer right and that was David Reynolds who will be heading to the RTE Concert Orchestra 30th of November um, for that concert of classic ballet music and that is our lot for this Friday evening and for this week here on Arena Polish Shields Ian Murphy and Niall Fitzmaurice were the researchers Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator Liam Mullen was on sand this evening and tonight's programme produced by Kay Sheehy I will speak to you once again Monday here on RTE Radio 1 and John Creedon will be with you after the news.